Well, good morning. Welcome to Boiling Springs Baptist Church. We are glad that you are here with us today. Um, we have a couple of announcements this morning. Uh, sincere thank you to Vicki Whitfield for leading us in our music this morning and Candy's absence. And I also want to say thank you, particularly on behalf of Keith, who arrived late last night from Guatemala. I want to thank Justin Webb for being here this morning and for preaching um, in our service. We thank both of you for your leadership in our worship this morning. We are glad that you are here with us to worship this morning. Mary is going to come up. She has an announcement this morning about our Falling in Love date night event, and so I'm going to turn it over to Mary. Good morning. In late July, around midnight, Samantha Collins, Carrie Dobbins, and myself were sitting around a kitchen table talking about how much we truly desire intergenerational relationships. We're all within our first five years of marriage, and though it's going well, there have been times where we know that a mentoring relationship could have made a huge difference. We are hoping that this night builds relationships among couples. Not only is this night aimed at building relationships between couples, but it's also aimed at strengthening the individual marriage units that make up our church. Marriage is the symbol of Christ and the church. If we are investing in our marriages, our faith and church community will grow. This date night has been something the three of us, along with the help of many others along the way, have been praying for and working on for months and we are so excited about the possibility of this night. The date night is $10 per couple, and for that price, you will get dinner, music, and a message sponsored by Focus on the Family. Not to mention great fellowship, a few door prizes, and a devotional booklet made of devotions from people within our own church. If you haven't yet signed up, you can do so today at Feed the Flock. We will be in there with registration cards, and we also have a nifty online form that you can go and you can pay through our online giving, and you can fill out the form online. So thank you, and I can't wait to see all of y'all there. Let us worship God, our light and our salvation. We desire to live in God's house and to seek God in God's holy temple. We have come with shouts of joy to sing and to make music to the Lord. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. Teach us always and make straight our paths in this hour of worship and always. Good morning. It is time now to do exactly what we just said we would do from the Psalms, to sing and make music to the Lord. Please grab a hymnal and turn to page number 60, Be Thou Thy Vision, and stand.
to come forward for lesson on this step. Miss Georgia, what have you done? You don't know? Well, I was hanging from the monkey bars and I fell down and popped my arm. Well, you know what? That could happen to any of us. I think this one probably's done that before too, haven't we? Well, what do I have in my hands? Gloves. Can we wear gloves today? Is it really hot outside or cold? But if I just look at my gloves just like that, they just lay there, don't they? Can they do anything? They can't, can they? They just sit there. What does it take to make that glove do something? Do what? Put it on your hand. And then what could it do? See, if I put this one on, and this is one of my favorite, and it's hot. See, I could do this. Nah, don't like that, do you? But we could do all kinds of things with our gloves. But I want to read a scripture to you this morning from Philippians 4, 13. I can do all this by the power of Christ who gives me strength. So if I put that glove on, the glove has strength, doesn't it, to do anything? But who helps you? You hurt your hand. Who helps you do things around the house? It's, it's my, my hand, my fingers look like sausages. They did. Mm -hmm. But you got it fixed, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah, I got it fixed. Pretty feeling a lot better. I'm so glad. Come here a second. Okay. Come stand right here. Be my special helper. Now. Oh my gosh. Who helps us? Who's inside of us that helps us do things? God does. So we're sort of like the glove. We can't do anything without God, can we? Who forgives us and he gives us strength? Who heals her hand and makes her feel better? It's God. So when we think about an empty glove, we think about ourselves. But then we think about what happens when God goes in us and in our heart. We have strength to do anything, don't we? Yep. All right, let's pray. Dear, Dear Lord. Lord. Go ahead. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Amen. Well, good morning. And like Alan said, if you're here as a guest, we are delighted that you are here. Uh, Melvin and Joanne Lutz and I have had a wonderful week in Guatemala. We're a little tired today. Got in about midnight last night into Charlotte. But um, thank you for your prayers. They were felt. And we are grateful for your love and your prayers and your concerns about us this week. Um, it, it, it's hard to put into words what we experienced this week. And we're still trying to process it. Uh, but uh, we, the three of us went down and visited at the Good Shepherd Orphanage in Shela, Guatemala, about four hour bumpy, dangerous ride from Guatemala City. And uh, we made it there and back, thank, thank the Lord. But um, the, the tremendous work that is going on down there by these missionaries and the, those that are employed through the Good Shepherd Clinic, the Good Shepherd Orphanage are just phenomenal. And uh, we are still trying to process all the things that we've heard and seen uh, these last few days. And so uh, sometime in the coming weeks, we will be sharing with the church family, probably on a Sunday night, most likely uh, more about this and, and some possibilities of some ways that you could support and be involved in, in, what is, in what God is doing there, but also the possibility of your participation in a, in a future trip. And so we're exploring all those things and pursuing options, and we'll be talking with the missions committee about our experience, and we'll see how the Lord directs and leads us from there. So thank you for that. This morning, we are glad in light of my travels this week to have Justin Webb. Many of you know Justin well. Uh, Justin and Stephanie, glad uh, Stephanie's uh, here as well. And, and so we look forward to hearing from you, Justin, in just a moment. Justin is a Gardner-Webb grad, undergrad, and Div school, and is now in his PhD work through Midwestern Seminary. And so, Justin, we're glad to have you here sharing this morning. 
Let me mention just a few items for prayer. Nancy Blaylock's uh, sister-in-law passed away, and so Nancy uh, will be remembering you. Uh, also, Annie Mae Bridges in the passing of her sister. And then uh, Robert Hamrick. This is the father of Wesley Hamrick and brother to Max Hamrick. And our, our love and prayers and sympathy go to this family at this time. Let's continue to remember Jerry Green. Jerry Green had a uh, setback this week, uh, but it remains in Charlotte, and we want to keep him in our thoughts and prayers as well. We have many that need our prayers and love at this time. And so, as you know of others, maybe in a Sunday school class or a small group, or you're just aware of someone else, uh, reach out to them this week with your love and concern. Will you pray with me this morning? Almighty God, we're grateful for your presence in our lives. We're grateful that you see us as we are, and Lord, you don't leave us that way. But Father, you do a work of redemption in each of us each day. Lord, as we sing, Be Thou My Vision, Father, we pray that your path, your direction would be evident in our lives, that, Father, you would be the source of our vision. For all the good that we do, all the, the ways we can express love, Father, we pray that you would be the source of the reason uh, that we reach out and that we love others. Father, forgive us for where we fail you. We know we do that in so many ways. Lord, we come, each of us, into this place today with some of us have had a, just a wonderful week. Others in this place have had just an absolutely terrible week, to be honest. And Father, you know each of our needs. So Father, my prayer this morning is that you would meet each of us at the point of our need. Father, I pray for Justin as he delivers your word this morning. You promise us that your word will not return void. And God, I pray that uh, you would bless our hearts and our ears as we hear the message that you've laid on his heart today. Father, we lift up those within our church body that are sick and struggling at this hour. Some are even here with us today, and in Lord, others are at home or in the hospital. And we pray for your comfort and your healing touch on their lives. Lord, for those that are dealing with grief from the recent loss of a loved one, we pray that you would walk with them through this valley, through this season, and that, Father, that they would look to you and trust in you in even greater ways. Father, we commit every song, every prayer, every word spoken today, and may you receive the honor and the glory. We are here for you. We are here to honor you. We are here to lift your name high. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, you would speak to us. And Lord, we'd leave different than as we came in. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we ask this prayer and all of God's people said, amen. Our next song we've sung several times. You're going to see me using some pages. It's in this arrangement that we're doing today is in 4-4 four, four time, which puts four beats in a measure, whereas the one in the hymnal that we're so used to singing is in 3-4 time. So it feels quite a bit different, and so I'm going to be using my pages so that I don't get lost in the music. Please stand as we sing, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone.
Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come into your house and worship you. Um, please bless these offerings that we give now. Um, help them go to whatever you see fit and whatever work you need done. Um, and bless us this afternoon as we go our separate ways and uh, continue to do your work in our community. Amen.
Our scripture for this morning will come from the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible and would like to turn and and look with me, follow along, or if you have a pew Bible right in front of you, if you want to grab that, and you may want to just leave that open for the sermon later on. But um, we're in Mark chapter 8 this morning. We'll read it now and just sort of uh, whet our appetites a little for it, and then we'll, we'll go back through it again in the message in a few minutes. Mark uh, chapter 8, verses 27 through 9-1. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power.
first of all, I want to say thank you uh, to my church family for you all uh, letting me be with you this morning, and thank you to Keith for trusting me enough to put me in the pulpit, and uh, I've uh, had several encouraging comments from several of you this morning. Larry Mack told me I needed to stand up, speak up, and then shut up, so that's, that was always good right there, good stuff. Uh, but uh, um, I, it is a pleasure uh, to, to be here with you this morning. If you'll notice, uh, the title of my sermon, I chose to entitle it Back to Basics and the Depth of the Matter. The reason I chose that is because what I'm going to, to speak about this morning is something very kind of fundamental and basic to our faith, but it's yet something that we, we never move beyond. It's something that's very profound at the same time. Um, and let me, let me begin, begin by asking a question with that. If you look around the room and think about us all here together, we're people of different ages, right? Different backgrounds, all that. But we're basically all here in this room together this morning because of one man, right? Who is that? Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus. Um, and, and, you know, that's that, that man, Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is what we've chosen to base our entire worldview on. In a, in a way, it's simple, but it's also profound, something we never get beyond. Um, so, uh, if you have uh, Mark, we're going to wait a minute before we read it, but if you have your, your, pew, uh, your pew Bible or your Bible, uh, keep your finger in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Before we get to the text itself again and start trying to, we'll probably read through it again one more time, but before we uh, do that, I want to give a little bit of background information, if we could see, yeah. Uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark thus far, I always like to uh, stand back in the, and look at the forest before I look at a particular tree. And so if we have to give a basic summation of Jesus' ministry in Mark thus far, we can say that after his baptism and being tempted in the wilderness, he begins a uh, teaching and preaching in Galilee, begins healing people, exercising demons, and this leads to a lot of popularity with the crowds. He enjoys a, a, a great amount of success. Uh, his teaching is, is very popular because he teaches with authority, uh, not as the scribes and Pharisees normally teach. And as you might imagine, the same things that give him popularity with the crowds also uh, cause a great amount of discomfort for the religious leaders. And he has conflicts with them, mainly through uh, his disregard for the Pharisees' oral traditions. And before we get to our text here in Mark 8, in the previous chapter in Mark 7, Jesus has just had a, a bit of an, uh, uh, a fight, an, an argument with the Pharisees and basically uh, uh, disregarded parts of their oral tradition and, and about what foods are kosher and this sort of thing. And then after that, he leaves and goes far north into Gentile territory, goes into Tyre and Sidon and kind of makes a big lap, comes back around, and as soon as his feet hit the ground on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee again, there the Pharisees are again, and they meet him with another argument. And so he leaves again, and he goes, if you can see the map, goes northeast to Caesarea Philippi. And that's the setting for our text here today. This is where he's at, and this is important because this is the turning point of Mark's gospel. Uh, this is a turning point, and this, what we're about to read here again, what he teaches his disciples, that's the, that's the place that he's, he's teaching them. Let's, let's read through it again. Let's read the text. I don't think reading it twice is going to hurt anything. Let's take a look at the text again. Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, 
If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now one of the things that's interesting when we look at this text, Jesus asks his disciples, you know, what, what are people, because he's had all this popularity, he's had fights with the, the, the Pharisees and all, and asks, what, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And then they give all these, you know, incorrect answers. Well, some people say you're like one of the prophets, like John the Baptist who's come back, you know, in his ministry. And Jesus says, okay, okay, but who do you say that I am? And I think he asks all of us that question. Peter, Peter has the right answer, doesn't he? He spurts off the right answer just as quick as he, he possibly can. You're the Messiah. But then Jesus rebukes him and says, no, 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 hush, don't tell anybody that. Why would he do that? Maybe is it because that though Peter has the right answer, he doesn't really have any idea the implications of what he's saying. You know, what is Peter's idea of a Messiah? I have a couple pictures here. Maybe we could put up, hmm. Anybody ever seen this movie before? It's great, isn't it? It's awesome. Braveheart's a man's movie. You get into it, you love it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But maybe... William Wallace, uh, maybe, maybe that's what kind of Peter has in mind, a Messiah, someone, a deliverer, someone who will rescue, you know, others. I've got another picture right here. Ooh, another Mel Gibson, right? The Patriot. And both of these just really make me hate the English for some reason, you know? Good. Even though Ancestry DNA says that I'm 70% English. Anyway. Anyway. But you think about how close these two stories are in a way. There's, there's a guy who is discontent with some sort of injustice and he gets a small band of followers around him, some good friends, and then that movement grows until they have more and more followers and then in the end they, it, it leads up to some epic battle that uh, ends in independence or freedom for everybody, right? You know, you think how similar that is. Also, if you think about it, there could be similarities there between Peter's conception of a Messiah here and, and, and what's beginning to happen with Jesus, right? I mean, there's an opposition force, there's the occupying force of the Romans, there's this you know, movement starting kind of thing. But, uh, but that's not uh, uh, what, um, that's not what uh, uh, Jesus uh, intended. That's not, that was not the Father's will. Instead, notice he says to them, he rebukes Peter and then he says, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering. What's this term, Son of Man? What does does that mean? Oftentimes today I think that we may look at that and think, well, that emphasizes his humanity or something like that. But that's that's not not correct. Um, Jesus' disciples, his earliest followers, knew that he was human, knew that he was a person. They saw him sweat when it was hot outside. They saw him eat food when he was hungry. And I don't think things have changed too much in 2,000 years. Have you ever got a group of men or guys together? Somebody's going to pass gas and everybody else laugh about it. It's just what happens, right? And I imagine that Jesus was rabbi and Lord, but he's also one of the guys at the same time, you know. And uh, um, so, they knew that, that he was a, a real person. So what is this term, son of man? From whence does it come? Where does it come from? Um, I want to share with you a text from Daniel. I believe we have uh, today here. Yeah, there we go. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. 
To him was given dominion and glory and kingships that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus' disciples most likely were familiar with this text. In fact, this is also a portion of it what Jesus quotes when he is interrogated later on by the chief priests in the Sanhedrin. They ask him, are you the Messiah? And instead of taking that title, he says, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of glory. And at that, the chief priest tears his clothes and says, blasphemy. They know what he's talking about here. Okay, this is a picture of a final judge, an eschatological judge, one who is ultimately finally given all the authority by God to, to judge. So that's what the, the term son of man means, but it doesn't end there. He combines it with another idea. Notice the son of man must undergo great suffering. What, what might be a scriptural precedent for that? Let me share another text with you this morning from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. We have this, what we call one of the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, uh, three through five. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole and by his bruises we are healed. So, when Peter says, you're the Messiah, Jesus says, you don't understand. The Son of Man must suffer. And actually a third idea here, and rise again. Three things here. In a nutshell, he has encapsulated his self-identity as he understands it. See, Jesus being human had to decide to go through with the Father's will of what kind of Messiah he was to be. It's interesting, uh, there's only twice in Mark here that, after, that, that Jesus and those around him hear an audible voice from the Father. Once when uh, he is baptized and begins his ministry, the dove lights on him and they hear the voice from heaven. The second time after he says this, teaches his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer, right after this in chapter nine is the transfiguration where he takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain and they hear the Father's voice too. And there's confirmation here. It's also interesting to me that perhaps in his darkest hour when he's praying in Gethsemane, he doesn't hear, or it's not recorded that he hears an audible voice there. And in the hard time, he still had to choose the Father's will of what type of Messiah he would be. I think we have a picture here. Jesus chose to do the Father's will. And it evidently is a temptation for him when someone suggests otherwise. That's why he takes Peter aside. When Peter says, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. This can't, this can't happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind human things and not the things of God. Yes, it doesn't make any sense from a human standpoint to be killed. You can't win and die at the same time. But Jesus knew the Father's will and carried it through. And you may be asking me by this point, Justin, why, why tell us this that, that, that we already know? What's, what, what do we do with this? I'm gonna suggest three practical things for us today as we look at this text. What, what can we do? Number one, we can look to our future hope See, Jesus did call himself the Son of Man. He is the final judge, the ultimate authority. And instead of looking at the present all the time, we need to look forward to the future. Either he will return or call us home one day, and when we stand before him, the full weight of our redemption will be realized. We can look to our future hope. 
in Jesus, the Son of Man, and not set our hope on anything any less than that. Not on getting a perfect job, a perfect career, not on getting a a salary raise, uh, not on having a perfect house where everything's in its place, or having a perfect family where everyone does the, the right thing all the time, not in a retirement plan, not in recognition or some kind of achievement, nothing less than our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. That's what we set our hope on. Nothing less. Something else we can choose to do is we can endure suffering with Christ. Everybody in life is going to suffer in one way, shape, or form, right? It's just a matter of whether or not you do it under the lordship of Jesus Christ, right? He said, anyone who wants to follow me, take up your cross and and, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will, will save it. Everyone will suffer. It's just whether or not we do it under the lordship of Jesus Christ and trust in a sovereign and faithful and loving God that whatever we experience, God can use that to make us more like our Lord that we follow. I got a text to share with you here too. It's something from Colossians. That's just one verse. I don't have a slide. I'll just read it. Paul says something curious in Colossians, in Colossians 1.24. Paul says, in Colossians 1.24, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Let me read that for you again. In my flesh, this is what Paul says, in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that what Jesus suffered on the cross wasn't good enough, wasn't enough? No. He means that Jesus is so identified with his body, the church, that whatever we face, whatever we go through, he experiences it with us. We are his body. Jesus identifies with us as we identify with him. And that's the third thing that we can remember. We can always remember Christ crucified. Can we back up a couple slides to the, there we go. Jesus obviously endured physical pain. His flesh ripped from his back as he was whipped with the cat of nine tails being flogged. Experiencing difficulty to exhale as the cross killed him slowly. But other than physical pain, he was rejected by his hometown. He was abandoned by his friends. He experienced anger, hunger out in the wilderness. He was misunderstood. He was hated by some. There is nothing in life that we can experience that Jesus has not. And that's what makes him an all-sufficient savior. He knows. And we can can remember Christ crucified. As I close, I want everyone to do something for me. If you'll bow your head and close your eyes. There may be the possibility that there's someone here who has never accepted the free gift of what Christ has done for them. Maybe you're like Peter and you know the right answer, but you don't know the full implications of it. Or there may be some of us here who have followed Jesus for a while now, but we forget in the busyness of life what he has done. If you need to do some business with God right now, I want to give us a moment of silence and we can pray. Perhaps God has spoken to you in some way and then I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, 
You are risen Lord. You are the suffering son of man. You are our perfect Messiah who followed, followed the Father's will. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you are with us presently. And thank you that there is nothing that we can experience that you cannot relate to. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We go.